Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Everybody believes in something, right? What do you believe in? The song says, I believe in the word of God. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. And that's easy to sing, but not as easy to prove. (laughs) And in a crowd this size, it's likely a statement not everybody agrees with. See, people tend to have very different views of the Christian Bible. And that actually is is the book that actually you'll find in the pews in the center row. And what I'd like you to do is pass them down so everyone has one in their hands. Because we're going to be looking at this tonight. And it's interesting, but we all have very different perspectives on this book. And don't even, don't even have to open it. Just hold it in your hand. Feel its half. Pass those Bibles down. And I'd like you, if you would, to rate your familiarity with the Bible. Where would you put yourself on this scale when it comes actually to the Bible? Maybe you're over here on the top. I remember a few stories from childhood. Oh, yeah, Davy and Goliath. I saw that cartoon. That was good. Uh, Two, or you're a little bit more than that. You're like, no, 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 I own one. I own one. Just don't ask me where it is. Or uh, third, you're like, actually, it's important to me. It's in the drawer of my nightstand. Uh, Whenever I stay at a hotel, it's right there. I know. Um, Or you're like, no, I actually open it up. I read it now and then uh, for inspiration. I mean, particularly when, like, crisis hits. That's when I, I go this for inspiration. Or maybe you're all the way on the other end of the spectrum and say, no, I actually read it regularly to connect with God, believing it's actually his living word after all. And when I open up and I read it, I actually encounter the divine in its pages. Where would you put yourself actually on that continuum? Because what you believe about this book is likely reflective of your relationship with the God of whom it speaks. The song says, I did not make it. No, it is making me. In other words... What we read and what we believe about what we read has a profound formational impact on our minds as well as our hearts. Without the doubt, the Bible has been the most influential document in all of human history. It's the most widely disseminated, most hotly contested. Take a guess, the number one best-selling book in 2005 and now in 2006. Anyone? It ain't the Da Vinci Code. It's actually the Bible. Yeah, for the last decade, it's been the number one best-selling book year after year, even eclipsing Dan Brown's novel. But what is the Bible after all? I mean, is it, you know, I mean, Dan Brown's book you'll find under fiction, but it's got some history to it. Is this historical with a little bit of fiction mixed in? Is it a combo? Is it credible? Is the words of God or is it the invention of some men? That's actually what the Da Vinci Code claims. In fact, on page 231, the character known as Lee Teabing boldly asserts this. He says... The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times. And it's evolved through countless traditions, additions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. In fact, the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda. And he goes on to know that the Bible actually contains, quote, glaring historical discrepancies and fabrications. Now, this is quite an allegation, because there's no question that the Bible is the foundation for the historic Christian faith. If you prove this book, again, feel this book in your hands. If you prove this book to be a myth, or or inaccurate, or full of error, you cut the legs out 
from Christianity. And modern Christians essentially are a bunch of misguided buffoons. I think Voltaire said it best. He said, if we would destroy the Christian religion, we must first of all destroy man's belief in the Bible. Folks, this is why the attack on the credibility of the Christian Bible will always be center stage. If you disprove the Bible, you disprove everything that followers of Jesus Christ believe. And the attack on the veracity of the Bible, though, at the same time, it's really actually nothing new. In the 3rd century, for instance, when the Roman emperors, uh, they unleashed an unprecedented wave of persecution on the church, they focused on attacking the Bible. For instance, I think it was 303 AD, Emperor Diocletian figured out that all the Christians based their beliefs on the scriptures that you hold in your hands. And so he began a systematic attempt to destroy the scriptures as a way of stamping out the Christians. In his book, Lectures in Systematic Theology, Henry Tyson notes, he says, Diocletian killed so many Christians and destroyed so many Bibles that when the Christians remained silent for a season and stayed in hiding, he thought that he had actually put an end to the scriptures. He caused a medal to be struck with the inscription, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of God's restored. That's 303 AD, all right? So the attack on the Bible is nothing new, okay? Whether it's a Roman emperor in the 3rd century or an agnostic novelist in the 21st century, attacking the credibility of Scripture is a recurring theme. Now, I've already uh, shared with you the Da Vinci Code leads us to believe a lot of things about the Bible, not the least of which is that it's a product of man, not of God, but also that it's an ever-changing document. I mean, how do you have a book not really change over the course of several thousand years? There's countless translations, editions, and revisions. He would also say that this is full of errors, right? Glaring historical discrepancies is Brown's exact quote, and outright lies, actually. And that this, it's not divine. It's a product of any, just everything else in our world, a product of politics, edited by men who are essentially had an agenda and are thirsty for power. And perhaps you identify with some of those sentiments, and that's actually okay. Doubters, agnostics are welcome in this church. We're not here to arm twist you or, or trivialize questions. This is a safe place to have doubts, to ask questions and actually weigh the evidence. But on the other hand, we should ask how the Bible, not just the novel, but what does the Bible actually answer that question about itself? Was the Bible written by men or by God? I mean, how would you answer that question? Before you answer it, you know, <laughs> you might be surprised. According to the Bible, was the Bible written by man or God? The answer is both. Two verses of scripture actually help us understand this. And they're actually printed in your program just under the Da Vinci quote. You can actually look it up. Why don't we do that? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We'll put the page numbers up of scripture all through the night. Can we get the lights up a little bit there? Thanks, Nick. Um, Just so people can read. This is on page 1952. And this is a letter from the Apostle Paul. And he writes this. He writes, all scripture... Is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this is the verse again in 2 Timothy 3, and it's really important in understanding the concept that both God and man wrote the Bible. Take a look at the key phrase there, right? God breathed means that it came where? Out of the mouth of God. It was breathed by his spirit. Now, you might also translate the concept of God breathed as inspired. Now, when Paul talks about the Bible being inspired, not like, oh, it's inspirational, like a Hallmark card. No. What does he mean by inspired? Simply put, he means that all words in Scripture are the very words of God himself. They actually sprung out of his character and being. 
And because God is perfect in his character and being, that means that everything he says, all those words of his in the scriptures are perfect as well. Or in other words, without error. Inerrant might be another way to say that. The Bible is inerrant and inspired. Somehow God supernaturally worked through common men to record his words and communicate them to us for all eternity. That's been the orthodox Christian belief since the early church began. That statement actually by Paul in 2 Timothy traces back to about 66 AD when Paul wrote it from a prison in Rome. So in essence, the Bible is of dual authorship, okay? Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible, puts it this way. He says, the Bible is a book of God and a book of man. God's part was to superintend the writing of the books, revealing his will. Man's part was to write this revelation using a human language and style so that God's message was preserved for future generations. So look at your Bible. The words we have in the 66 books of this Bible are literally God's words. And all of them, the Bible claims, are without error. Which, if it's true, is an absolute miracle when you think about it. Because actually this isn't a book. (laughs) Better way to describe the Bible? A library. That's what you're actually holding in your hand, a library. The Bible is a collection of 66 individual books written by 40 different authors. And they range wildly from kings down to fishermen, a tax collector, shepherds, prophets, a doctor, Jewish guy named scholar named Paul. And they wrote these 66 books over a span of 1,500 years. And yet, from all these different backgrounds, writing thousands of years apart from one another, they all wrote on one common theme. The person of Jesus Christ and the payment for sin that he's provided so that we can have restored relationship and friendship with God. I mean, there's agreement on this from the beginning of of the first words of Genesis in the Old Testament to the closing words of Revelation in the New. Now, here's the deal. I know some of you are thinking, well, that's great, Tim, but dude, you're like using circular reasoning here. (laughs) You're proving the Bible with the Bible. You can't do that, bro. That's like philosophy 101 mistake. (laughs) Of course the Bible says it's true. That's self-referential. It's like saying, I'm right because I'm right. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) But hold on. I'm just trying to show you what the Bible is saying about itself. We'll get to the harder evidence in a moment. So track with me, okay? Now, the second major verse that the Bible uses to attest to its veracity is in 2 Peter 1, 20, verses 20 through 21. And this is Peter writing his uh, second epistle, and he writes this. He says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So he's saying, this Scripture actually doesn't, isn't about the orig- it doesn't have its origin or beginnings in the will of man. It's not their idea. But rather, God worked through men called prophets in the Old Testament and apostles in the New to record his written words. There's a great little book called When Skeptics Ask, and authors Norm Geisler and Ron Brooks put it this way. They say, Scripture comes from God. The only adequate view incorporates both divine and human factors. It's the prophet model. In this process, the human writer is seen as one who has received a revelation and actively participates in its writing, while God gives the revelation and oversees the writing. Hence, the message is holy from God, but the humanity of the writer is included to enhance the message. Both the divine and human concur in the same words. The net result is that we have the word of God written by men of God, inspired not only in its concepts, 
but in the very words used to express those concepts. The human writers are not mere secretaries, but active agents who express their own experiences, thoughts, and feelings, and what they've written. It's not simply a record of revelation, but a revelation itself. It is God's message in written form. The best example I can give you of this is, is kind of um, something that happened at the office this past week. I get a lot of emails from folks who listen to our podcasts online or through iTunes. And it's neat to hear from folks. They don't even go to the church, this church, but you hear from, from, from far away. And it's difficult to keep up a lot of times with all their requests and correspondence. I always give first priority to the folks are here and we correspond. But sometimes we'll get, get stuff from all over the place. So I got this note this week from a guy in Perth, Australia. It said, ahoy, mate. <laughs> And he just wanted to let us know how he was enjoying the messages, how it impacted him. He had a couple questions about our ministry. So anyway, I read every note, I read, and I read his whole email. It was really encouraging. And I, I wanted to respond, but there was a ton going on here. So I asked Susie Ron, who actually, she helps as my assistant during the week. I was like, Susie, would you be willing to write this guy back on my behalf? Let him know, first off, how cool it is to hear from someone from Australia. And just kind of, just, if you could answer his logistical questions about, you know, giving online, whatever it was. Anyway, it was cool because Susie said, yeah, sure, no problem. She knows me really well. And so she responded to this guy with the neatest email written on my behalf. She doesn't send it to him. She sends it to me if I want to add on anything to it or, or change it. And, uh, and, I, and I get this note from her, and it, said, it says, good day, mate. How awesome to hear from down under. Right? She, she wrote it in this kind of like very creative kind of language, and she went on to answer his questions and express my appreciation. Get this. It was her words, using her style and her gift for creative expression, that was used to express my thoughts. It was actually a note from me. I told her what I wanted to express. She wrote it down, but she used her flair and her style to communicate it on my behalf in a language that our friend in Australia could relate to. That's the idea behind dual authorship, that God chose to express his personal message to us, communicated to, to human authors through his spirit, and then used that writer's personal style and gifts to put it into words for us. You get it? The idea is that God communicated his very truth to men on earth who then without agenda recorded it for us using the unique flair of their experiences and unique backgrounds. That's their filter that they sent it through. So that's what Peter means when he says prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Although transcribed by men, the Bible hasn't been tainted by politics or personal agenda. Instead, it claims to be the words of God and as such they're supposed to be perfect and without error. I mean, even, Susie, even though Susie wrote that email, that listener in Australia can have full confidence that he was getting my thoughts and receiving an unfiltered response through the human author I hand-selected and entrusted with that task. So in summary, what does the Bible claim about itself? Actually, quite the opposite of da Vinci. One, to be a product of God, recording his very words. Two, to be a living document, not changing, don't get that, but actually inhabited by the Spirit of God. Not full of errors or distortions or discrepancies, but inerrant, without fabrication. And a product not of man's political agenda, but of divine inspiration, written by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now again, I'll stop here. Because some of you may be thinking like, okay, Tim, I get it. You get the point. The Bible says the Bible's true. (laughs) Written by God through man, fine. But you're still using circular reasoning. That the Bible claims for its, what the Bible says about itself doesn't really prove anything. I mean, at least now I know what it claims. But why is it so important? Because if we know that the Bible says it is the the, the word of God, but you can disprove anything in it, you actually would cut the legs out from all of Christianity. However, 
the reverse is true as well. If you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible is true, then we have a comprehensive understanding of who God is, his will, what it's like for us, what our purpose is in this life, and where we will spend eternity. You see the collision course kind of set out for us? What do you believe about this book? Fabrication, full of holes, human, divine, combination? And if you believe it is divine, as I know many of you do, would you be able to explain it to a friend without using circular reasoning? (laughs) So someone says, hey, I've been coming for a while. I'm ready to put my confidence in this whole Jesus thing. But just tell me why I should put confidence in the Bible, because that's who tells us about Jesus. What would you say? And you can't say, well, in uh, 1 Timothy it says, what would you say? What I want to do tonight is wade through some hard evidence, not just what the Bible says about itself, but what we can learn from objective outside sources, such as archaeology, scientific fact. Because I want to equip you so you can answer that question for yourself. But I kind of have to prepare you and make a little disclaimer, because it's 91 degrees in here. And this is like heavy stuff. Like I'm like, oh, man, collision course, scholarly stuff tonight. It's summer. You'd be like expecting something light in church during vacation months. So like why all the research? Here's the reason why. Real easy. I've got a conviction that is unshakable. And that is to be a Christian shouldn't mean you have to check your brain at the door. That's what a lot of people think. That quite honestly, I've got, if I'm going to become a Christian, I have to commit intellectual suicide to believe in God. God does not expect you to check your brain at the door when you come to church. That's what some people believe. I agree with Erwin Lutzer who says, religion, if it's worth believing, must be based on facts. Yes, there is room for faith. But unless it is faith in facts, faith is not only useless, but destructive. The Bible cannot afford to have historical errors. We're encouraged to believe its doctrines because of the reliability of its history. In fact, the reliability of the earthly matters gives us confidence in the reliability of the heavenly matters that are beyond the realm of human investigation. The bottom line is that the Bible has to be reliable about the things of this earth if we're to believe it about the things of heaven. We cannot let the biblical writers off the hook, making excuses for their failures. In their case, even a few minor errors would be fatal to the whole document. So tonight, we're going to look at the credibility of this book that you hold in your hands, really three, prim- three primary ways. Bibliographic evidence, archaeological evidence, and the third one, evidence of biblical prophecy. Now, we'll actually just look at the first two tonight. We're not going to have time for the third. And quite honestly, fulfilled prophecy is the juiciest. We'll get to that next week. But obviously, here's the deal. I need to say this. We're not going to be able to cover every base in depth, but I want to give you a general overview of the Bible's veracity. So if you're here tonight as a skeptic, I'm glad you're here. And here's the deal. I'm not naive enough to think that something I say tonight is going to once and for all change your mind about God and the Bible. But I hope at least you'll consider the things that we're going to discuss. We're going to intentionally include a lot of secular sources in our conversation tonight because this isn't about like, you know, spewing religious propaganda or preaching to the choir. And I'm hoping that you'll be intellectually honest with yourself in regards to this topic. All right, so let's roll up our sleeves and dig in. Are you with me? Okay, thank you. Now here's the deal. We're going to look first briefly at bibliographic evidence, okay? And this is, this is the first criteria that any scholar or historian, not Bible scholar, any historian, looks at to determine whether an ancient document is accurate and credible. And here's a concession I have to start with. Because this Bible was written thousands of years ago, the original copies have decomposed and been lost over time. The the original autographs, that's what you call them, the original papyrus written on by the Apostle Paul or Peter, no longer exist. If they did, they'd be priceless and likely for sale on eBay. (laughs) But what we do have are early manuscript 
copies of the originals, which were recorded line by line, letter by letter, by scribes in the first century. No Xerox, human hands, scribes. And so the question is, well, wait a minute. How do you know that the scribes who made these copies of, of which our translation are based didn't make errors in their copies? Well, the answer is, do you know what the life of a scribe was like? Actually, you wouldn't, especially if you were under 30, because it was at 30 where they first let them put pen to paper. Not a big pen, whatever they use, the ink on the papyrus. Scribes were trained until they were 30 years old. And then when they began transcribing, that is copying, letter for letter, they had the master scroll, and each letter of every scroll was visually confirmed one by one, letter by letter with the master scroll. And here's what they did. They took a thread... A thread was often placed between the letters to ensure separation and accuracy. Every letter in each scroll was counted, and the count was then compared to the master scroll. Every word in each scroll was counted compared to the master scroll. And the middle letter in each copied scroll was located to compare it to the master. And if a single mistake in any scroll was found, guess what happened to the scroll? Destroyed. Burned. Sorry, you know, you know those homonyms like, you know, they're going, they're going to go over there, which there is there, right? Sorry, you got your homonyms wrong. Torch it. Gone. That manuscript was gone. Now, here's the deal. It was these early manuscript copies that provided the basis for the Christian Bible that you have in your hands tonight. And to determine if the copies accurately recorded what was in the original documents, scholars, modern-day scholars, put it to a bibliographic test. So, for instance, if you're going to discover the accuracy of copying the New Testament... You have to look at two things. One, the number of manuscripts existing today. How many copies are there actually in existence? And two, what's the time period between the original document and the earliest manuscript still in existence? You get the idea? So the more manuscripts we have, and obviously the closer the manuscripts are to the original, the more you're able to determine accuracy. Now, that's the objective criteria used for any ancient document, biblical or secular history, okay? So I'll give you an example. Watch this. This is kind of interesting. The book Natural History by Pliny Secundus, okay, was written uh, very, very early on, and it has seven manuscripts. This is a second, I think, second or third century document. It has seven manuscripts in existence today with a 750-year gap between the earliest known copy and the original text when it was written. The number two book in all of history in terms of manuscript authority is a book you probably read in high school. The Iliad. Anyone remember reading that one? Who was it by? Who's the author? It's the original Simpsons pilot, right? Yeah, Homer. The Iliad. This is the number two book in all of history in manuscript authority. It has 643 manuscripts with a 400-year gap. Now, this is where it gets startling. The New Testament, which you hold in your hands, currently has 24,970 copies, completely towering over all other works of antiquity. We actually have one original fragment of the New Testament with only a 50-year gap from the original. Whole books with only a 100-year gap. In the entire New Testament, if you took every book, with only a 225 to 250-year gap. Now catch this. Historians give credibility to other ancient documents like the Iliad, even though most were written a thousand years after the actual events. And the number of copies found to compare with are very limited. Yet nobody disputes those as factual. 25,000 manuscripts within 50 to 200 years. This is unprecedented in all of ancient literature. 
There are no other copies of any ancient literature that even come close to what we have in the New Testament. Um, in the New Testament documents, are they reliable? Author F.S. Bruce notes this. He says, The evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Now, these nearly 25,000 copies and portions of the New Testament manuscripts are all consistent with the actual New Testament you hold in your hand tonight. And we're going to talk about that. How do we know that? The question Dan Brown raises is this. Has the New Testament gone through translations, additions, and revisions? I mean, over time, don't people add ideas of their own? You ever play telephone as a kid? You know, I tell you something, you tell the next guy, and you kind of change it, and it messes it up, and it's screwed up all by the end, right? Don't, is that what happens? I mean, 4,000 years, people change the content. They alter its meaning. Now, it is true. Here's the, here's the deal. True. There have been thousands of translations of the Bible in a number of other languages. That part, Dan Brown got right. <laughs> but those translations do not challenge the authenticity of the content of the New Testament, which is what he implies. Now, remember this. When Jesus commissioned the disciples, he leaves for heaven, but he tells them first, go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. So from the very beginning, the Christian faith is a missionary faith. Take the good news of Jesus Christ to all the world. And to fulfill that command, Christ's followers immediately began translating the New Testament into the major languages of the world's population at the time. Namely like Syriac, Latin, and Coptic. Remember I mentioned Coptic last week? An Egyptian version? But Dan Brown claims that no, 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 no. Recent discoveries invalidate this. Now how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Everyone know this one? We're gonna, yeah, I'm going to make you feel smart. What body of water do you think they were found by? <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Anyone know what year they were found? That would be impressive. 48, 48. Dude, that is so close. 1947. You're like a vulture. You're like, oh, that was close. 47? You know, like, come on. 1947, actually. And it's interesting. The, the finding of these things are incredible. A Bedouin shepherd was actually throwing... He was out... Out, he was a, he's a shepherd, a modern-day shepherd, was throwing rocks into caves. And he threw one rock into a cave where instead of landing with a thud, it landed with a crash. He actually ended up hitting one of the ancient vases in which the Dead Sea Scrolls were kept. That's how they were found. It's an amazing story. It was the archaeological find of the century. This is what Dan Brown claims about this. He says, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s, hidden in a cave near Qumran in the Judean desert. The scrolls highlight historical discrepancies and fabrications, clearly confirming that the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man Jesus Christ and use his influence to solidify their own power base. Now, that's quite an allegation, but here actually are the facts. I'm not talking interpretation. Here are facts. Dead Sea Scrolls were not found in the 1950s. As our friend knew... Any archaeologist knows they were found in 1947. Secondly, there were no copies whatsoever of the Gospels found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not the New Testament Gospels, not the Gnostic Gospels, nothing about Jesus at all. The Dead Sea Scrolls consist almost exclusively of copies of the Old Testament, along with a few documents that were internal to the Qumran community. And it's incredible because far from undermining Christianity... The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was remarkable primarily because they confirmed the extraordinary accuracy of the existing Hebrew scriptures. 
Prior to, the, to 1947, biblical scholars were kind of on their toes to like respond to critics, actually. They actually, because the first copy of the Hebrew scriptures was dated around 1100 AD. It was obviously a copy of a copy of a copy. So how can you know that that copy is authentic and uncorrupted? With the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found our answers. Jeffrey Grant notes this in Jesus, the Great Debate. He says, the most incredible find was discovered in Cave 4 at Qumran, an immense library of biblical manuscripts that contained almost all the books of the Old Testament, with the exception of the book of Esther. In fact, multiple copies of several biblical texts that had lain undisturbed in the desert caves for almost 2,000 years. After carefully comparing the biblical manuscripts, they discovered that, aside from a tiny number of spelling variations, there were no significant differences between the original scrolls in the caves and the Hebrew text used to produce the authorized King James Version of 1611. So in other words, far from revealing glaring historical discrepancies and fabrications, quite the opposite in the historical world. These scrolls provided us with credible evidence that the copies of the Old Testament manuscripts that we've been using are authentic. Dr. William Albright, he's of John Hopkins University, he's widely recognized as a leading archaeologist of biblical times. He said this, he said, My heartiest congratulations on the greatest manuscript discovery of modern times. What an absolutely incredible find. And there can happily not be the slightest doubt in the world about the genuineness of the manuscript. So, multiple translations? Yes. Additions and revisions? No. The tradition of Bible translation continues to this current day. You ever hear of a ministry like uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators? They've got one mission. They go to the remotest part of the world and they learn the language of indigenous tribes. They study their language and painstakingly then translate the gospel into the words and language of that tribe. That's translation. And so we've got many translations of the word of God. Open yours up. You'll notice we've got actually two in here. Do you see how there are two columns? One's the New International Version. And then we have a paraphrase called the message. We're just simply putting it into a language people can understand, which doesn't mean you're changing the content. Ironically, that can be used to actually defend the Da Vinci Code, which has a few translations of its own. <laughs> the BBC reports that actually the Da Vinci Code has been translated into 42 languages, right? You can take a look up there and you're like, whoa, does that mean Dan Brown didn't author it? Or the folks, you know, in Albania who are reading Cody Da Ivinta <laughs> aren't receiving Brown's exact words? No. That's the entire purpose of a translation. You'll actually look up there. You'll see Arabic, Bulgarian, Chinese, Dutch, Greek, Japanese, Latvian, I think Slovak. That's the point of a translation. But does it mean that you altered the content or the actual story? No, of course not. But that's the facts for the Old Testament. Here's a question. What about, because that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are, what about additions and revisions to the New Testament? How do you know that the New Testament that we have hasn't actually been corrupted as the Da Vinci Code claims? Well, as we discussed at the start of this series, one of the main claims to the Bible's authenticity is that the Gospels that we have in the New Testament are authentic eyewitness accounts. Not fictitious, but basically legal documents eyewitness. The manuscript evidence that we have, the vast majority of the books in the New Testament were written during the actual lifetime of the apostles. Now, take a look at this. This is kind of interesting. Conservative and liberal scholars date the books in the New Testament as the following. You can take a look at Paul's letters written, almost everyone agrees, between 50 and 66 A.D., if you really want to push that, the hardest people who want to refute the evidence will say, well, it could be 100. <laughs> and if you think about Jesus actually dying in 30 A.D., you realize that's 70 years. That's actually still within someone's lifetime, an eyewitness account. Same for the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll see John is the one that's under the greatest dispute, dated later. 
But when you consider that when Jesus died in 30 AD, you realize the point. These were established as eyewitness accounts in the first century. And if you read the Gospels, you're going to see it all over. Peter actually says this. Peter opens up his second epistle. He says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. John opens his first epistle with these words. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. In the book of Acts, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he stands up before a mixed crowd, including many Jews, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. In other words, the New Testament writers were constantly appealing to eyewitness authority. They're like, we saw this, you did too. (laughs) You can't refute this. This guy was crippled and then he walked. Do you remember? You saw it. (laughs) They even appealed that way to those who were hostile to Christianity. Hey, these are the facts. Now, you may not like the facts or our interpretation of them, but this is what happened as you yourselves know. Much of that New Testament was written 20 to 30 years after the events by eyewitnesses. So people had a chance to cry foul if someone was adding or embellishing something. People, you could say, no, 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 that's not what happened. Dude, I was there. <laughs> now, you know, it's amazing because when you think of, you know, censoring or revising something. Who's, who's baseball fans? We have baseball fans here. Yankee fans? Thank you. People don't like the Yankees? Get out of the church. <laughs> Just lit. It's amazing. You remember two years ago... Hard moment for the Yankee fans to admit. Remember two years ago, the Yankees are leading three games to nothing over the Boston Red Sox in the playoffs. Remember? Oh, I know. Let's just have a moment of silence. Let's start. Good times right here. Oh. And the Red Sox stormed back, as we know, to win four straight, and then they won the World Series. I would love to be a revisionist about that. I would love to post on the Liquid website... Untrue, Yanks win, you know. And you, but what would happen if I actually posted that, like, on my blog? Like, it didn't happen, actually. The Yankees won that. Johnny Damon didn't hit it. I'd have Red Sox Nation all over me. They'd be like, dude, you, no, the Yanks didn't win. I'll sh-. Dude, I TiVo'd the series. You can't say it happened that way. I was there. I had the ticket stub in a gold frame. That's the power that eyewitness accounts and firsthand evidence have, Okay. These 27 books in our New Testament were written during the lifetime of the authors, inspired by God, open to eyewitness testimony or contradiction as a primary source. And that's the primary reason the Gnostic Gospels were rejected for inclusion in the canon of Scripture. It's interesting because, you know, these are starting to gain popularity. If you go to Barnes & Noble and you've got that whole Gnostic section now and they're putting like hardcovers on them and selling them for like $19.95. And it's amazing because there's one thing liberals and conservative scholars agree on. These were written, not decades, centuries after the original events. They were not eyewitness accounts, nor were they authored by an apostle or disciple of the original apostles. I mean, whatever you believe about the lost gospels, one thing is certain. Like, for instance, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, one thing is guaranteed. It was not written by Mary Magdalene in the second or third century. She was dead, unless she lived to 300 years, okay? Most likely, take, like, the gospel of Judas. Was this written by Judas? Kind of hard to write the memoir after the whole hanging thing. You know, you got... To... <laughs> so what's up with these? Almost all scholars agree. The authors co-opted the names because by then, the apostles were becoming famous or known. They had buzz in Christian circles. And they likely attracted attention and, and could actually get their agenda out there, how times change. Same with all these. Gospel Thomas, Gospel of Philip. In fact, 
Yeah, you want to know, it's a real misnomer to call these gospels at all. What does gospel literally translate to, you know? Good news. Good news, of which these documents have none. They don't call themselves gospels, and neither should anyone else. There's actually no resurrection of Jesus. There is no salvation from sin. There is no reconciliation with God through the death and life of Jesus. With the Gnostics, all salvation is accomplished by you, if you can find the secret knowledge that will lead you to the truth. Whoa. Now, Dan Brown would have you believe that these documents contain evidence that Jesus, that there was great diversity, like among early Christians, that like, no, this just shows some Christians didn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. <laughs> but the problem is the dating of that renders it trivial. It's, it's impossible. These are hundreds of years after. It's interesting because I'm like, I, you don't even need to appeal to Christian sources. You guys know The New Yorker, very liberal kind of magazine? Adam Gopnik wrote in the April 17th, 2006 issue. This is great. He says, The gospel of Judas no more challenges the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to the basis of American democracy. There are no new beliefs, no new arguments, and certainly no new evidence in the papyrus that would cause anyone to doubt who did not doubt before. This is from an article entitled, Jesus laughed. <laughs> As you can see, I'm not trying to make fun of it, but there is wide and pervasive bibliographic evidence that supports scholarly opinion that the Bible that we have is a credible, authenticated eyewitness account from early first century manuscripts. You can put your confidence in this library, at least from a historical perspective. But what about scientific fact? Archaeology. I want to close, actually, our time tonight. We are running out of time. But just I want to introduce you a couple of archaeological evidences that were recent that prove the case for the veracity of Scripture. And I obviously don't have time to show you all of it. Um, but let me take a minute and just go over a couple of archaeological discoveries that will get you thinking. Turn to the first book of the Bible because you're like, well, that's New Testament. Turn all the way to Genesis. Genesis 19, verses 24 through 25. This is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know Sodom and Gomorrah? You know that story, right? Fire from heaven, that whole thing? Okay. Sodom and Gomorrah, essentially, the, people, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah said, screw God, we are going to be his enemy, okay? And this is, we hear about fire and brimstone. Take a look at this, Genesis 19, 24 through 25. It reads, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. Now, until recently, this story was thought to be kind of stupid and just superstitious. That people who had declared themselves enemies of God, they were destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. Like, isn't that just like religious rhetoric or like mythological symbol? Like, man, you know, I get the message, like, don't piss off God. But, that, you know, it doesn't really happen. I don't even know. Well, in his book, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell notes this. It's amazing geological evidence. Points to earthquake activity and that the various layers of the earth were disrupted and hurled high into the air. Bitumen is plentiful there. And an accurate description would be that brimstone, bituminous pitch, was hurled down on those cities that had rejected God. There is evidence that the layers of sedimentary rock have been molded together by intense heat. Evidence of such burning has been found on the top of Jebel Uzdam, which is Mount Sodom in modern-day parlance. Folks, whether it's documents discovered in caves or new layers of sediment found in a geology dig. When you dig in the dirt, new evidence points in one direction. 
to the historical reliability of the gospel. That what this book records factually happened. I'll give you one more example. Remember the walls of Jericho? Recorded in Joshua 6. Turn there real quick. That's on page 345. This is amazing because Jericho was one of the oldest cities in the world. It was actually built thousands of years before Joshua was born. He's the biblical author who writes about Jericho. But in Joshua chapter 6, there's this interesting story of the Israelite siege on this city, which was an incredible turning point in Old Testament times. Jericho actually had fortified walls, again, archaeologically, they know, 25 feet high and up to 20 feet thick. Imagine that. 25 feet, now think 25, 25 feet thick, okay? And ancients regarded Jericho as a symbol of the military power and strength of the Canaanites. Those were the enemy of the Israelites. Well, in Joshua 6, again, this is thousands of years later, the founding it, we were, Joshua records, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up. Every man straight in. Now, just stop there at verse 5. Can you imagine how stupid God's people must have felt Okay, at this point? All the soldiers of Jericho and sitting around the top of this 25 foot by 20 wall, this massive fortified city, watching God's people make fools of themselves. Let's get the horns out. Doo, doo, doo. Marching around, blowing trumps. It's like ridiculous. It's like in Monty Python. Like, I, I thumb my nose at you, you know? <laughs> but according to Joshua, God gets the last laugh. In verse 20, it says, When the trumpets sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so every man charged straight in, and they took the city. Now, here's the deal. For years, critics of the Bible said, well, this is one thing. That would ne- it's never happened. It's just another myth or fable of the Bible. It wasn't until March 5, 1990, issue of Time magazine entitled, Score One for the Bible. <laughs> Fresh clues support the story of Joshua at the walls of Jericho. Now, the writer Michael Lemonick, he actually goes on to describe the excavation work was done by a late British archaeologist. Her name was Kathleen Kenyon, very famous. She was not a Christian, but she studied at the site of Jericho for six years. And here's what he reports. Kenyon's discoveries at Jericho were largely consistent with the Bible story. For one thing, she found that the city's walls had fallen in a way suggestive of sudden collapse. Moreover, Kenyon found bushels of grain on the site. That is consistent with the Bible's assertions that Jericho was conquered quickly. If the city had capitulated after a long siege, the grain would have been used up. A thick layer of soot at the site, which according to radioactive carbon-14 dating, was laid down around 1400 B.C., supports the biblical idea that the city was burned, not simply conquered. Again, this is Time Magazine, folks, Article entitled, Score One for the Bible, Fresh Clues Support the Story of Joshua at the Walls of Jericho. Folks, the more that we pull out of the ground, the more accurate the Bible is proven to be. Secular archaeology even undermines many of the controversial issues that Dan Brown raises in the Da Vinci Code. Remember last week we looked at the, the role of women in Christianity? Remember that? Brown's novel, as you know, says that pagan religions, like, like those of Rome, gave greater honor to women than Christianity because they had goddesses as well as gods, right? The sacred feminine. Okay. 
archaeology. The reality is that in the early centuries, women flocked to the Christian church. And archaeology proves that. One early church in Serta was actually seized during persecution. This is actually a fairly recent archaeological find. And they were digging, and they found in this community, they came across, they were digging, they found 16 male tunics. In other words, there were at least 16 men who were part of this early church. But catch this. They dug another layer down, and they found 38 veils, all of which obviously would have been worn by women. Dig a little more, they found 82 women's tunics, 47 pairs of female slippers, and six copies of Oprah magazine. All right, now look. Obviously, I mean, magazine part, but the rest is true. Robin Fox, a historian, writes, it's highly likely that women were a clear majority in the early church. In Rome, when a woman became a widow, if she didn't remarry within two years, she was considered a financial drag and could be penalized for that. In the church, however, widowhood was honored, and the care of widows was part of the community. Women found the early Christian church to be a place of profound acceptance. And archaeology supports that fact in the New Testament writings. Nelson Gluck, who's not a Christian, he's actually a Reformed Jewish scholar, he says this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Dr. Kinnaman, he's a respected scholar, he echoes that assertion. He says of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by the archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. When you weigh bibliographic evidence and archaeological findings, you begin getting the sense it would be almost impossible for mere men to write the Bible. How could mere men record and preserve history over a span of 4,000 years with such stunning accuracy? How can mere men look out over hundreds of years and identify world leaders, empires, and predict the outcome of wars? The only way to explain it is, as Peter did, that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just the first two ways you can really weigh the claims about the Bible being the very word of God. And I just want to thank you for your patience. I know we've, it's been hot tonight. We've waded through some real scholarly stuff. You know, college students home for break are like, I can't get away from history class, you know. But to me, the most compelling evidence for the truth of Scripture and who Jesus really is, is what we'll look at next week. Fulfilled biblical prophecy. What if you learned that what the Old Testament prophets wrote thousands of years before the New Testament apostles were not only accurate, but actually predictive of what would happen in history 2,000 years later. Well, it does. The Bible is prophetic. I want you to think about this. I'm going to put this in terms you can begin understanding next, year, next, next week as we leave through some of these amazing prophecies. Can you imagine buying 17 lottery tickets, state lottery tickets, only 17, and you win 17 times in a row. It's a probability of that. About the same of 1,800 biblical prophecies being predicted 2,000 years before and coming true. And we'll take a look at that uh, next week. It's amazing because you begin realizing that when you have a knowledge of world events and the smallest details of individual lives, that's not the invention of any man. It is the thoughts and the sovereign plan of God himself.
I hope you'll come back for that as we dig in the dirt and unearth the real truth. Let's stand to pray together, would you? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us enough to preserve your very truth in the pages of Scripture. I want to thank you for using ordinary human beings to record and transmit an extraordinary message that the God of the universe loves his creatures and can be trusted to lead them into truth. I want to thank you, Jesus. You are the embodiment of authentic truth. That when you walked this earth, you walked as both a man and God, fully human and fully divine, sort of like your word. I ask that you'd open our minds and hearts more fully to your truth this week as we open up the pages of your Bible. Amen.